Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. For Douglas Ross to stand there and talk about losing grip of a party when he has been leader, the Conservatives have had the longest attempted coup in Scottish political history. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to the Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name is Conor Matchett. I am the deputy political editor of the paper and with me this week, as will now be the new normal, is both Alistair Grant and Rachel Amory, our political editor and political correspondent. How are we both this week? It's been a beautiful weather week, hasn't it? It's been nice. It's been pretty quiet otherwise, though. Yeah, I mean, it's just been a, it's been brilliant weather. It's been a reasonably quiet week in politics, I think. Having said that, there's lots on today, lots to talk about. Uh, so, yeah, not too bad. Did you cope all right while I was jet-setting? I think we coped very well. It was actually too well, of anything. We kind of, we found you our surplus to requirements. I'll pack my stuff. <laughs> um, but let, let's move on to the substantive issues of the day. Um, it's been, as, we, as I mentioned, it's been a quiet week up until today when apparently everyone decided that it was going to be news. Um, the biggest story of the day is probably Ian Livingston, the departing Chief Constable, telling... Um, the public and admitting that Police Scotland is, quote, institutionally racist and discriminatory. Rachel, can you tell us a little bit more about that and what you think the implications of that are? It's obviously a very big statement for any police service to make. It's a watershed moment, first time that any police service in the UK's come out and said this. Well, the Chief Constable is um, on his way out of the job and this is kind of his uh, parting statement and it's, it's certainly a very um, significant statement that he's made. It's quite shocking for everybody that's reading it here because it, it doesn't hold anything back here. It's not just saying, you know, there's some problems here. It really is going quite tough on the police service with racism, homophobia, misogyny, um, a whole litany of really big sort of ingrained problems with the system. And I think the question now is, what is it that needs to be done? Because I think everyone has kind of sort of sat back and thought, wow, this is, a, this is really bad on the service. Sorry, the force even, and... It was brought up the First Minister's questions. The SNP did um, get a lot of criticism from the opposition, from um, Douglas Ross and the Conservatives for it. I think the big question now is how do we sort it? Cause it seems to be such a huge problem. It, it's kind of difficult to even know where to start with it. And it, it also comes off the back of the ongoing 
public inquiry into Sheku Bayou's death. Now, for those who aren't aware, Sheku Bayou died um, following being in police custody and they were examining the circumstances of that death, whether or not it was motivated by hate um, or by race, sorry, and by um, discrimination. Um, and it's, it's, it's this kind of, there's an interesting balance, isn't there, of like, it's a very big statement to be made. It's kind of a Me too moment for ethnic minority people. But then you've got police officer representatives saying that, you know, the leadership need to take some sort of responsibility for it, Alistair. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's a, it's a big moment. Uh, I think you can see that from what Hamza Youssef was saying in the Holyrood Chamber. You know, he's a, a person of colour. We're saying it's, you know, monumental, historic. Speaking to, to journalists afterwards was talking about how he felt quite emotional listening to it. So he was talking about some of his own experiences, saying he'd been searched, uh, I think he said, over a dozen times as a young man, uh, out of his friends, out in the streets. So it's something that I think a lot of people of colour living in Scotland will have experience of. And it's a huge moment to hear the Chief Constable of Police Scotland come out and say that the force is institutionally racist. Uh, and as was said in the chamber, you know, conceding that, admitting to it is the first step in doing something about it. But there will be a lot of um, a lot of worry, I suppose, among some figures that um, this kind of paints the force in a, in a very negative light, that it kind of, uh, I suppose, from the Scottish Police Federation's point of view, there might be anger about the, the fact that Ian Livingston is the chief constable. He's been the chief constable of Police Scotland for quite a few years. He's been in senior positions in Police Scotland for a long time. Uh, and there might be a sense that the, the leadership of Police Scotland are those that are driving the culture of the force, that they have to take responsibility for this. And I think maybe presenting it as an institutional thing, uh, some would say is a way to kind of avoid tough questions about their own leadership. Um, so I think there's certainly criticism from figures, you know, Callum Steele, former, formerly of the Scottish Police Federation, who's been very outspoken about this and very critical of the way Ian Livingston has gone about this. And Rachel, it's worth, I think, highlighting, isn't it, that there was a historic, it's a historic moment for any police service to come out and say this, but maybe it's made even more pertinent by the fact that the First Minister responding to it and responding to this statement is a person of colour. I think so. Um, that's, this is one of the things I was discussing with a lot of people here in Holyrood when, when he first got elected as SNP leader and First Minister. And we were reflecting on how much of an impact is this going to have on um, racial diversity across the whole of Scotland. If you sort of look back to Nicola Sturgeon being um, the first female First Minister, I feel like that did sort of introduce more women into politics just in general. And I sort of thought that might happen um, here with um, sort of racial diversity with Hamza Youssef. And I think this is one of the big sort of first big tasks that potentially could be reflective of that here. It is going to be quite interesting to see what happens here. And you could see that he was sort of affected sort of emotionally by what was being said. Um, and he took things sort of very, very seriously. You could, you could tell that it, it meant a lot to him beyond just being the first minister, this statement. Do we think that, you know, Ian Livingston... <laughs> He, he he's been a, been chief constable for near enough six years now. He's been at the top of police Scotland for a long time, and he announced simultaneously to this that he's going to leave the job on the on August the tenth. Now we knew he was already on the way out. He announced that earlier this year in February, but he's confirmed his leaving date, and he's left this kind of steaming admission of institutional wrongdoing on the table of his successor, presumably piling the pressure on whoever that person is. Um, and yet there didn't seem to be a huge amount of self-reflection. 
on his role and, and as you mentioned, Alice, the kind of wider leadership role of senior police officers since the inception of Police Scotland? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's I suppose, one of the problems that people will have, that he was in a senior leadership, leadership position. And as you said, uh, people will have maybe looked for a bit more self-reflection on that. I think from his point of view, this is obviously comes in the back of a, a kind of wider context across the UK in terms of big questions being asked of the police, uh, being asked of how they go about their, their jobs, the uh, prejudices or not that they bring to those jobs. It's something that uh, is not just affecting Police Scotland. It's very much a question, for example, that the Met are grappling mm -hmm. with. So it comes in that context and it also comes in the back of a report that found examples of uh, racism, other forms of discrimination, uh, by frontline officers, also experienced by frontline officers. So I think there, there will be tough questions for Ian Livingston. He's obviously left this, uh, as you say, huge statement on this massive problem for his uh, successors to kind of deal with, I guess, in a sense. But um, I think he will view it as an important thing for him to have put on the table as the first step in doing something about this. It'll be really interesting to see what happens and whether or not, I wonder, he might be invited back here as a former chief constable soon enough to be asked to talk about it. Um, let's, let's move on to the other, one of the other big news stories of the day. Um, Rachel, you were at Dynamic Earth, which we can see out of a window if I crane my neck appropriately, this morning to, to hear from Tom Arthur, um, who's the, the public finance minister, to talk about the introduction of a visitor levy now, can you explain what yeah, in I God's think, name that is? Yeah, I think most people probably recognise the term tourist tax a bit better than how it's been put by the government. But basically, they're going to look at proposals. If this gets passed, then councils will be given the power to charge a tourist tax. Um, it would be up to councils individually rather than the government as a whole of Scotland. And basically, yeah, if you stay overnight in a hotel, in a campsite, a guest house, holiday let, whatever it is, you'll have to pay a small charge on top of your nightly rate and that will go back to the council to pay for tourist services. We know a lot of councils have already said that they are in favour of the idea. Edinburgh Council um, in particular has already said that this is something they really want to see brought in. I think it was about £15 million a year they think they could generate in revenue from this, which is a huge amount of money for a local authority to be taking in. And I know it's the capital, but it's still a lot of money for a local authority. The Highlands, obviously, that's our next biggest tourist destination after the capital. Um, they think it would be up to 10 million that they bring in through this levy. And that could get spent on all sorts of things, which probably would be quite needed if in those areas. And it's fundamentally, isn't it? It's fundamentally about mitigating the impact of tourists on public services and that sort of thing. Now, I'm, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it's the business reaction to this is kind of mixed. You've got some people going, you know, this is terrible. This is going to put people off staying in Scotland. You know, it's an additional tax on hospitality and businesses, even though it's on the visitors rather than the businesses. And then you've got, I think, the Scottish Tourism Alliance today as well being quite circumspect about it, saying, you know, we, we want to work together on this. Um, part of that seems to be that they've committed the government to reinvesting that money, however councils decide, but those councils have to reinvest it into something that tourists or the tourism industry would get something out of. And that's something that we don't quite know the detail of as of yet. And the journalists um, at Dynamic Earth spoke to Tom Arthur and said last year at the Fringe there was a, it was quite a big issue with them um, overflowing bins. And it was a bin strike at the time, but that was one of the big issues. And I know that people in the Highlands, um, particularly on the North Coast 500, complained about road conditions and things like that. And we were saying, well, could this money be spent on 
bins and road maintenance, which doesn't seem like a tourist thing, but it, it kind of is. And he couldn't really answer that question, um, very much saying it would be up to councils, but there would be a, there would be sort of guide points given to them on that. But I think in terms of people paying this money, it will be a very small amount. Um, and I, I, it's one of these things that it's, it's actually already in place in a lot of countries. You were on holiday recently, Connor, and where you went had a tourist tax. Yeah, I mean, this it, it's uh, I went to Florence, so and Florence is well known as being a place that is inundated with tourists. And let me tell you, that's not an exaggeration. It is absolutely overflowing with them. And we were asked to pay 21 euro in cash on arrival. Now, that's the tourist tax. I don't know about you guys. I don't know about you know you you at home listening but 21 euros in the context of a european holiday is a few pennies in reality when you're when you're going abroad considering the amount it's going to cost you to get flights over and get accommodation um and it's funny i i, I tweeted about this earlier and twitter is a terrible place to get an idea of what people think of an issue but unlike a lot of scottish government issues a lot of people are going yeah, well, we do it when we go to Holland, we do it when we go to Germany, we do it when we go to Switzerland and France and Italy and all of these places that have the, this in, in existence. Yeah, this is something that I think people are quite used to already doing. Um, I think the only thing that perhaps we haven't really sort of thought of here, because we, we are thinking of uh, people from overseas coming to visit Scotland, is maybe you're on a night out in Edinburgh, Glasgow, and instead of getting the last train home, you stay in a hotel you probably wouldn't have thought, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to have to pay a tourist tax for that. So that's maybe the only sort of thing that um, might have people have gripes about, but I can't imagine many people being too up in arms about it. I mean, Alistair, you, you, like me, have covered the council here, and it's been something that councillors have been talking about in Edinburgh for years as a potential way of mitigating the impact of tourism on the city. I mean, it's going to be introduced in Edinburgh if it's passed by the Scottish Parliament, isn't it? It's just a matter of how much and when. It'll almost certainly be introduced. And you're right, it's been go a conversation that's been going on for years. And we've had this kind of extraordinary, almost existential debate in Edinburgh about this, about whether it should be introduced, what it would mean. And I think the final, or the proposal the, the council had actually put forward was something like £2 a night charge add added to the price of a room for the first week of a stay, which is quite a small amount of money. Uh, and as we've been pointing out, uh, I actually had a look at all the different cities in Europe that already have a tourist tax in place, Venice, Rome, Paris, Amsterdam, Lisbon, Berlin, mm -hmm. you know, and Edinburgh is a tourism capital. It's definitely on the same footing as all of those cities when it comes to being a tourism destination. So the idea that the city wouldn't be able to sustain a tourist tax, I just think is quite a strange argument. Uh, I can understand why there's concern about introducing extra costs. I think that's always a conversation that needs to be uh, completely fought through and the debate thrashed out. But yeah, I think the, the scale of the debate that happened in Edinburgh over this was, I think, quite surprising. I think when you look at the you know, councils across Scotland, I think all of them, I think I'm right in saying all 31 were supportive of the principle of being handed these powers. There is a, uh, an argument within COSLA, the council umbrella body, that just the principle of the councils being handed the, the ability to do this is important in and of itself, even though many of them will not introduce it. Mm -hmm. It's about empowering them and handing them the responsibility over, over local taxation, which is something they have called for for a long time. So even though all the councils in Fiji would be able to do this, you, you're really just looking at councils like Edinburgh, Highlands, as we talked about, Fine. maybe a couple of others, Fife perhaps, but Edinburgh is the one that all eyes will be on, really. And it'll be very interesting to see how, they, how it is... Uh discussed in regards to the fringe now that is a 
that's already considered to be too expensive for people to come and visit Edinburgh during and this is going to be an additional cost on top of that and it will be that debate has morphed into Edinburgh becoming unaffordable hasn't it for for performers in particular rather than visitors and it'll be interesting to see if the tourist tax adds fuel to that fire going forward. I'm sure it will, but those debates should be separate. I mean, the problem, the problems that the Edinburgh has seen in recent years with the, the Fringe and the Edinburgh Festival, there's a wider debate to be had about the future of the festival. It's one that Edinburgh has been having for quite a while now, but I'm sure will continue to have. Uh, but that, that debate shouldn't really be seen in the same light as this. As I'm saying, it's £2 a night charge is, is not a huge amount of money, uh, particularly for the amount that that could raise for the city in the long term. And if anything, introducing a tourist tax to then pump money back into the city is a good thing for the people who actually live here. And, it, and it, it's all of the, we won't go into the depths of Edinburgh local politics, but it works into all of those co- conversations that we've had over the years about Christmas fairs and their impact on the, the Princess Street Gardens and places like that, and you know whether or not taxpayers should be paying for that or visitors, blah, 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 blah. But we'll see, well, I'm sure we'll hear more on that going forward um, when it comes to being debated in Parliament. And what's your instinct, Rachel, on opposition to this? Do you think Because it seems like it's going to be a relatively consensual process. I think a lot of people um, in Holyrood ex- will find it an agreeable thing, but we know that the Conservatives had said it is a sort of a NAT tax, saying that businesses are already facing a high tax burden, that many have said in the public consultation to the government's proposals that they don't want it. But like you said before, it is a tax on the visitors, not necessarily the the business and hospitality sector here in Scotland. If this does get passed, um, we probably won't actually see it until 2026. So it is still a wee while off actually happening. Absolutely. Well, we'll, we'll we'll see and hear more from that going forward, I'm sure, particularly after the Edinburgh Festival and the inevitable stories that will come out of that about tourism and over tourism. Well, from tourism to Westminster and London, where there's plenty of that going around as well. Um, Here's the latest from our Westminster correspondent, Alex Brown, giving us his latest dispatch from the House of Commons. To the Westminster section podcast, I am, quite fortunately, the paper's Westminster correspondent, Alexander Brown, and Boris Johnson is once again the only story in town. Forget your Suella Bravamans, forget your G7s and anything to do with Ukraine. Boris Piffle Johnson, as I live and breathe, is causing a right ruckus in Westminster. This time, and it is something that I would encourage you to laugh at, the former Prime Minister has got in trouble because following the COVID inquiry or as part of it, he had government assigned lawyers and he handed them his diaries to look at so they could prepare him for the inquiry and any questions he might face. They then found so many incidents, they felt duty bound to pass them on to the cabinet office, who then felt they had to pass them on to police. These incidents were said to involve having friends and family over to checkers, as well as events in the Downing Street flat. Now, you may be thinking, And you might not be wrong to think this. If you've had parties or friends over during a lockdown, that might be on you. But no, you would you could be wrong, sir. Actually, this is very much a case of the blob going after Boris for backing Brexit. Instead, we have heard that this is a stitch up from Tory MPs. We've heard that there is a a concerted effort to go after Mr Johnson and discredit him, uh, led by or at least allowed to happen by Rishi Sudak. This is obviously nonsense, but I think the one lesson you can take from this is just how strong a position Rishi Sunak is in. 
because not only have the MPs who support him, and let's remember 102 MPs uh, were said to support him during the last leadership election that he then dropped out of, no one really significant has gone public and said, this is terrible, why is Rishi Sunak not doing something? Is he colluding with the Cabinet Office? People have stayed pretty quiet, uh, and all the briefings have been anonymous. There were threats of by-elections, uh, that I was dismissed by Nadine Doris as a word that I can't say on a podcast that can go out at any time, especially if you're listening in a car with family. But suffice to say, you know, Mr. Sunak looks very strong from this because not only does he not need to slap, slap Mr. Johnson down because he's done it himself, it also is a great reminder to MPs about, you know, here's what you could have won. This is a situation that you could be in. Since Mr. Johnson stood down as leader, he has faced the Privileges Committee, he has had the whole incident into the funding he got from the BBC chairman he appointed. Uh, and now there is this, whereas Mr Sunak uh, is boring. He is, you know, quietly competent uh, and just getting on with it. And I think for a lot of MPs, that is what they want, though obviously not if it's Keir Starmer. So, yeah, it's Mr Johnson now, Mr Johnson next week and Mr Johnson forever. But it is good news for Rishi Sunak. That's my take. And it's a big one. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Thank you very much indeed, Alex, for that. Last thing we're going to talk about today is the recent polling. Um, as we mentioned, up until today, it was a relatively quiet week in Scottish politics, apart from a couple of polls. Now, we had two separate ones. We had, first of all, a YouGov poll. This was a MRP model poll for those who aren't um, incredible nerds that look at these polls all the time. That means that they've modelled it on specific uh, constituencies. It's intended to give a better idea of the overall position rather than a uniform national swing, which assumes everyone votes the same wherever they live. Um, in any case, this led to the SNP falling back to 27 seats. It had Labour very close behind on 24, which is a huge gain of 23, with the Lib Dems and the Tories on a handful each, um, around four each. Uh, that would be not a hideous result for the SNP in historical terms, but in recent years it would be terrible. That is compared, however, with an Ipsos poll for STV, which put the SNP on 44 seats, Labour on nine, and the Conservatives and the Lib Dems on three each. Alistair, it's two widely differing polls, but the, ge the, the general direction of travel is the same, which is the SNP are in decline. How bad could it get? Two polls, quite different stories they're painting overall in terms of just how upset the SNP would be. I think they'd be quite happy with that second yeah, one agree, on, yeah. their, <laughs> on their current, uh, considering their current woes. Uh, I think there's, uh, we've spoken about this before in the podcast, the sense of momentum behind Labour, a lot of optimism around them, uh, the sense that they're targeting up to 20 seats in a general election in Scotland. There's not an expectation that they would win 20 seats, but they're certainly targeting them. They're certainly up for the fight in 20 of them. I think to combat that, there is also, uh, I've spoken to someone this morning actually, who was saying that there's a feeling among some in Labour that they might be getting a bit too arrogant about this and that actually it might not be as easy as they are thinking to win some of these seats. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the SNP will certainly be concerned that the ongoing police investigation, the well-publicised troubles they've had are having an impact. And we can certainly see in these polls that although they're very different, that the SNP is on course to lose some seats and Labour is on course to benefit from that. 
And it's also fair to mention as well that not in the too distant past, we had numbers around that Ipsos poll for, for STV, that, those 44 seats. That's only four fewer than, I think that's my maths right, um, than in 2017. Now, the 2017 election was considered a bit of a shot across the bow, wasn't it, of, of Nicola Sturgeon's leadership just after the EU referendum. Um, but she sailed through that, um, to continue with the ship metaphor. Um, <laughs> but she sailed through that, came out the other side to have a really strong 2019 election. Now, Hamza Youssef's future is arguably how much damage limitation he manages ahead of what we assume is a winter 2024 election. Um, I mean, do, do we think that a 2017 result where they're still first and they're still by far the biggest party in Scotland is enough for him to stick around and enough to launch a 2026 Hollywood election campaign? I think the problem, the problem sorry, that Hamza Youssef has is that he's starting from a position where he's been completely on the back foot. He's not had any honeymoon period as, as leader. He's had all these negative headlines about the SNP. Uh, he's basically been firefighting every single day as First Minister. Nicola Sturgeon started off with this extraordinary surge in support for the SNP after the referendum. You know, she was addressing stadium audiences in this kind of strange hybrid political kind of weird rock star kind of thing that was going on with the SNP where they were, they were literally filling stadiums with supporters. Mm. Um, and then they had, you know, their fantastic 2015 result. And then they had troubles after that, but she, she began with momentum. Mm -hmm. Hamza Yusuf's problem is that he doesn't have that. He's not beginning with that. He's beginning with this really difficult situation. And I think he will find himself in a lot of trouble if, if they do start to lose seats in a big way. I think probably to some extent, you know, there is an expectation that he is, as you say, basically overseeing damage limitation to some degree. He's dealing with problems that weren't created by him. But having said that, you know, he is now the leader and he will have to carry the can going forward for, for results. It's also fair to mention, you know, a lot of these polls, I think, I think the YouGov poll in particular was highlighted by them as the worst result for the SNP since 2010. Now, when people hear that, they're like, oh, that's only a few elections ago. The reality is that that 2010, the SNP won six seats. You know, they are a completely different political beast to what they were uh, when the Conservatives first came to power. And that, that's, you know, they're nowhere near that level of annihilation yet. And that would be considered a, a I mean, the SNP would be considered a spent force if they only won six seats at the next general election. We'll talk a little bit, though, about the independence level of support. The Ipsos poll yesterday was actually quite good for independence. They have a little bit of a different methodology, it appears, Ipsos, that tends to give them higher yes levels of support than other polls. But and Rachel, it was 53% for yes, 47% for no, with undecideds out of there. I think it was 51% for yes, with don't knows included. The SNP are going to probably feel quite happy, aren't they, that independent support hasn't really been dented by their own woes, but they'll be concerned about the decoupling of pro-indie support and SNP voting. Yeah, this sort of suggests that while support for independence has kind of remained the same, it's still around the 50% mark, that they're not holding on to that vote. So perhaps the independent supporters, which is the SNP's key base, are turning away from SNP presumably to Labour, but it could be to other parties as well. So that is going to be something that's very interesting. I think it was earlier this week as well, was Ash Regan mm -hmm. um, suggesting that waiting until uh, support for independence is at 60% before pursuing a campaign would be ridiculous. And 
it's not getting up close to 60% anyway, is it? It's still around the 50% mark. It's still not consistently above 50%. Um, the next poll could very well be back down to 49%, for example. Um, it's not consistently above 50% at the moment. And there's a concern, isn't there, with the SNP that if you look at what happened in post-2014, that independence referendum was a kind of fundamental decoupling of Labour voters going to SNP because of nationalism. You know, that habit was broken once and it hasn't really been repaired since. And they'll be hoping, the SNP, that even if they lose a few votes to the Labour in, in 2024, that they won't necessarily lose them for good in 2026 and that maybe a Hollywood election will focus the constitutional mind rather than the kick the Tories out mind. We are unlikely to see a Conservative government in Westminster after the next election, so that could very well um, happen there. You were saying there that um, Labour, for example, um, had taken the votes back. Labour... Um, across the whole of the UK, are opposed to a second independence referendum. And so it's likely that if they were to receive a majority in Westminster at the next election, they would be saying no to the SNP to giving a second independence referendum. I mean, you might see a bit more support for SNP after that from people who maybe have gone to Labour about support independence. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, both of you, for joining us this week um, on the Steamy. Thank you very much to Alex um, as well from Westminster. And thank you very much at home for listening.